0: Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort.
1: eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease and a whole lot of love, you transform 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
2: Hi, welcome to the NASCAR NBC podcast. Nate Ryan back here in our Charlotte NASCAR and NBC studio on the Monday after the Roval round of 12 cutoff race, where we are joined in Charlotte for, I believe, the second time this season. Yeah. Parker Kligerman is here. So, not often that we get you down here. So, to what Great honor do we owe your presence?
0: Ah, uh, I had to go do some simulator work. Had ah. to is actually the wrong word. Got to uh, had the opportunity, which is cool. So that was nice. Did about three and a half hours in simulator. Somehow my hair <laughs> didn't get affected because we wear the helmet in there. It's perfectly in place um, for Motor Mouths. Yes, but yeah. it still it did not get affected. So that was perfect. But that brought me down to North Carolina. We mixed in the NASCAR and NBC podcast and now Motor Mouse afterwards. So yeah, it works out great. Full day
2: works out really well for both NASCAR and NBC. And am I allowed to ask? who the simulator was? No. no? Okay, all right. A, an undisclosed like, team and manufacturer that Just because I like to
0: stir things up.
2: I'm just going to say no. Okay, all right. <laughs> we won't ask any more simulator questions today until after I hit the stop button on this recorder. Let's talk Roval then, and we'll start, obviously, with the winner, Christopher Bell. We had him on Motormouths. I, I think it was coming out of Texas. like You and I were on that program we were talking mm-hmm. to him, and I thought he seemed like he was in good spirits going into Talladega, but then he tells us after he wins the race yesterday second victory of the year advances into the round of eight in a must win situation christopher bell tells us that he's been down in the dumps pretty much since texas all the way through talladega didn't get the home run he needed at talladega and obviously goes into the roval knowing toyotas have run so poorly on Mm -hmm. road courses this year Granted, it was a very opportunistic thing where there was a lot of chaos at the end of this race that put him in position to win on much fresher tires, but he ran in the top 10 for much of this race and kind of put himself in position, him and Adam Stevens, to win it. So what did you make of that? Did it catch you off guard that Christopher Bell was able to do this?
0: I thought it was wild that they pulled it off. I'm not surprised. I mean, speaking to Adam Stevens and, and C. Bell for the last couple of weeks into months, you know, they've had such a positive and you know, attitude, a a confidence going into the playoffs. And then we went in that first round and they were just like by far the best. Uh, And that really, I don't want to say it surprised me because I just, they were telling me this each week as I was doing the pit reporting thing. And then we go to Texas and it's like it unravels and then Talladega continues, you know, downward spiral. And so I think this one, I sort of wrote them off. Like probably everyone else because I just felt like, like you mentioned, you know, road courses have struggled for Toyota. I spoke to Chris Gabehart after Talladega. He's like, you know, we did what we needed to do. We did what we needed to do at Talladega because he's like, I'm not confident about the Roval. <laughs> you know, they've had the engine issues or the rev limiters on the TRD motors in terms of like when they hit the rev limiter, it was hurting those motors as we saw the issues so they had. So like, you know, that's something you do a lot at road courses, especially just being in between gears at certain corners. So I just think there was a lot of Knows there and you know They took a gamble I don't even know if it's a gamble Because why not they had nothing to lose At that point put four tires on there was a lot Of fall off which was great And that vaulted them in you know through A couple great moves by Christopher Bell on the racetrack so I, I didn't expect that by any means for them to pull this off, but I'm just not surprised because they just seem to exude this confidence that is now propelling them to the round of eight
2: and two Toyotas in the top three. Again, I know a lot of things happened just in this race, <laughs> but well, actually, you know, three in the top seven. You look at Christopher Bell first, Kyle Busch third, Bubba yep. Wallace, who has certainly shown improvement on road courses, but is generally not known as a road course racer. Finished seventh. Did Toyota maybe find something that we didn't
0: see, foresee, or know about, or maybe? Uh, I mean. <laughs> Speaking of the crew chiefs, I don't know if there was a lot of confidence, but I know uh, or believe that they may have, you know, f- figured out some of their motor issues and were able to sort of turn up the wick there uh, for the road courses. So could that have been it? Maybe a little bit uh, in the uptick in performance, but you know, I think there's still there's obviously still work to do there in the speed department potentially. So yeah. it's uh, this, it's just been an interesting thing to follow. You know, just that struggle on road courses this year. We just don't historically see that, right, where a, a single manufacturer doesn't have the speed.
2: can just completely miss it, especially when it's just a, a completely new car. It's yeah. not like Chevy and Ford went in with any sort of advantage. It was just <laughs> like we just showed up and like, oh, Toyota's just mm-hmm. that much off, which was sort of crazy. Uh, but doesn't really matter. No more road courses left in the playoffs Aww. over the final four races. <laughs> we're done with that. Yeah, we're done with that. Uh, and we'll get to that a little bit later. Uh, we're yeah. going to talk some more road course racing and the next gen, which... Interesting discussion to be had there. On the flip side of Seabell, we've got Kyle Larson, who was almost disconsolate uh, after the race. Parker, after being eliminated as the defending series champion, does not even advance to the round of eight. And Larson said after the race,
3: you know, "I just made way too many mistakes all year long, and made another one today, and, and ultimately cost us a opportunity to go chase uh, another championship. So just extremely, you know, mad at myself and." You let the let the team down um, a number of times this year, and and let them down in a big way today. So um, you know, we'll keep fighting. We'll we'll come back stronger, and, and I'll definitely come back stronger and smarter. Um, you know, make better moves out there, and just mad at myself. So yeah, you know, there's there's no definitely no other person to blame but myself um, for today. So um, I feel like our team put ourselves in position uh, as well as we could on points today, and. Got as many stage points as we could. It was, I think, plus 27 or 8 at the time when I, you know, screwed up. So, just for no reason either. Um, I I wasn't even pushing that hard at at that moment. And it got loose and caught me off guard. So, yeah, I just got to keep working on my craft. Um, Just be better and and make a lot less mistakes. Like I said, I've made made way too many mistakes this whole year. And you can't win a championship like that. So. yeah, no surprise that I made a ma- another mistake today and, and took us out of contention.
2: So Kyle Larson does bear some of the brunt here because it was him brushing the wall that bent this, broke this toe link or whatever and caused him to go five laps down and pretty much took destiny out of his hands where he could no longer sort of control his fate. But does he deserve all the blame? I mean, did you think he was almost almost shouldering too much of what went wrong this year? What went wrong this year? Or did he maybe just make one too many mistakes to defend his title? <sighs>
0: Yeah I I think only they know, right, the team, to the level of mistakes that either he made or they've made or just, you know, not been able to hit it in terms of execution throughout this year because I mean, we see the very visible stuff, right? We see the hitting the wall, that sort of thing, the issue at Indy, but more importantly to me would be more of like is there things that we haven't seen, right? Is there small hiccups or stuff in terms of preparation whatever it is, right? So I I think that's probably him being a little harsh on himself, knowing his level of skill and talent and just, I mean, the guy is unbelievable. I see him do things all the time, and I'm just like, I don't understand how. <laughs> I saw him at Watkins Glen, just, I, I don't know. He was so good there in both races that I just sat there in awe, just like, how does this guy do this all the time? Like, just And I remember talking about it and just being like, all right, what points do you use? He's like, I don't know. i just drive it. And I'm like,
2: all on feel. What <laughs> oh, all so natural ability. So I man. have
0: a tough time, and I don't want this to sound like, oh man, I just love colors. I just have a tough time putting him down because to me, he's just a generational talent that will continue to cement that legacy for a long time. And you know, if it's if he believes he's making more mistakes than he should be, then I'm sure it's something you know he. Cliff Daniels would go talk about and figure out how maybe it's in the preparation side of things. It's in the mental side of things. Who knows? You know, I've always had that question about how many different race cars he drives all the time, if that could get him distracted at some point. But uh, Cliff Daniels told me, you know, that's not really the case normally. So I don't know. I'm I, sure that you come off a season like he had last season, which was incredible. You don't have that same success and chance to go fight for the, you know, to back up your championship. That's probably a frustrating place to be. But I, I, I think that he he's such a incredible talent that like i don't know even if he is making mistakes he's probably 10% above just about everyone else. <laughs> I mean, the guy is clearly all-world, and yeah. we're already
2: talking about him possibly running the Indy 500 next year. Of so course. This and, is he'll not, and he'll do great. Yeah, he'll be, yeah, he'll, he'll, be awesome. he'll wow everybody, I'm sure, getting into that car like he does in every vehicle he gets in. And this is not meant to cast aspersions on his talent whatsoever, but I thought it's interesting what you brought up there about Cliff Daniels saying that, no, we don't feel as if him running other series would, would impact him in the Cup Series, because last year the narrative was very much we want him to run all these other yeah. series there were all these questions about when he went to Hendrick Motorsports in that first year in 2021 how much will they allow him to race they let him race all the time and you know he won the Knoxville Nationals it seemed like he won dirt races all the time and it did seem like it was helping him on the cup side I think Daniel said on Motormouse here once that he thought that it helped his restarts but all that being said it does seem as if he's maybe not winning as much I don't know maybe I'm not paying a Enough attention to DirtTrack.com Well, no, or whatever, he, he definitely,
0: what, what did he have like a, he had an insane win record last year. Right. And now I think he's at like 12%, which, you know, most people, that's like a career high slash Hall of Fame worthy percentage in race, you know, in racing. You're going to lose normally a lot more than you win in motorsports. Yet he's like, ah, 12% is what it is. I think I'm at like a 2% win rate in my life right now yeah. in terms of stock car racing. So, um, <laughs> Yeah, I just think that's his bar. That's his level, right? It's that's what we set expect high. Out of, yeah. It's set so high. I, yeah. It's just the guy. You know, but this is the day job, right? That's fun stuff. This is the day job. This is the one that you really, you know, the top of the game. And I think, you know, there's potentially a bit of with this car and just the parody we've seen, it's going to be more often than not that you're not able to even really clearly cut, run away from people, right? Where, you know, we've seen you put a guy like Kyle Larson with an incredible car like last year and they win an amazing amount of races in a championship. It might be more about the minutia and the little things now as we move forward. And that might just be a mentality change he has to make and, you know, he and Cliff Daniels have to look at and sort of figure out how they need to approach that because it's just a changing form, you know, how this racing is changing in its form. Yeah, and I'll
2: give him credit. He was so inconsolable in that interview. Like, there was no question that you don't, you didn't watch what he said after the race Sunday and think, oh, NASCAR is just a 9-to-5 thing. He'd prefer to be dirt <laughs> racing every night. Because that, myself included, that was somewhat the knock on him earlier in his Cup career. Is that we, I think some of us, again, I'll put myself in this category, questioned how much of a priority was NASCAR for Kyle Larson. I think you saw from that interview after the Roval that NASCAR very much is a priority and it almost seems as if that championship last year maybe galvanized him a little bit, or yeah. maybe just driving for Hendrick, he just sort of is more appreciative. I mean, have you gotten that sense being around him in the last year and a half that maybe he's kind of changed his view of being in the Cup Series? Obviously, he went through a lot of other things that transpired that maybe mm-hmm. changed his perspective
0: as well. But I, I think he just respects that it's the top level, right? You know, yeah. this is the highest level that there is in America, that you know, highest competition level you're going to run into in that sense, and that there is a weight that comes with driving for. Rick Hendrick and Hendrickcars.com on your car, right? Like they want to sponsor you and be a part of this because, you know, that comes with immense weight to be driving for the most successful teams in NASCAR. So I think that is not lost in him. I would not for a second you know, believe that that's lost on him in any way, shape, or form, and that, yes, there's an enjoyment level out of the other stuff, but I also think, to me personally, he's just a guy who likes to race, drive race cars and race, and that other stuff allows him to do that, and I think no matter what it was, he would want to do it if the opportunity is in front of him to go race.
2: Another driver who was eliminated, Daniel Suarez, which I think coming into this race, Parker, if I would have told you that Daniel Suarez was going to finish 3rd in Stage one, mm. sixth in Stage 2, come in with, I believe he was 13 points up on the cut line, and then he was going to get eliminated. I think we were all going to have questions about how could that happen. He's a great road course racer. He won at Sonoma earlier this year, and he essentially got victimized by a part failure with the steering problems. And afterward, Daniel Suarez told Dave Burns, Daniel, when you knew that you were going to lose power assist 100%, what did you tell yourself mentally, and then how in the world did you do it physically?
1: I guarantee you something. I'm the only driver in the field that could have finished that race the way my car was. Like, my, my, uh, my arms are completely destroyed. I have never felt like this in my life. My shoulder is very bad. My ha- my hands destroyed. It was tough. It was very, very tough. You know, um, we did what we needed to do in the first half of the race, getting stage points and everything. But you know, once we we lost the steering, it was pretty much just you know hoping for a little bit of luck which you know we almost got it right there at the end but you know it, it, it's difficult to just relate in luck 100 percent um it's what it is you know we, we have to continue to get better i think we are the only car that actually had the same issues so maybe it's something that we did uh, i don't want to say it's a crappy part because i was the only one that had the problem but um you know we have to come back to the shop and you know look what went wrong and trying to get it better, better.
2: I'm told this could be about the worst place for it to happen. Infield flat, but when you hit the banking, all the forces are tugging against you.
1: Honestly, it was very, very bad. In the everywhere, everywhere. I mean, there were a couple of times, actually more than a couple of times, I was just screaming. Just, I just need to get it out. I mean, I was. It was for sure the most difficult race I have had in my life, but. I wasn't going to give up. You've
2: driven one of these cars. What would it have been like to have, essentially, not just no power steering, but essentially... I mean, he had to literally manhandle this thing around the Roval, which didn't look very easy.
0: <laughs> I think the only place harder would be, like, Bristol, right? Yeah. And I don't even know if you could do it, if you could even turn the wheel. I, I was I was getting ill watching him. I even <laughs> texted a buddy of mine, uh, Landing Castle, and I said, Hey, I'm I'm getting ill looking at this, because it's just like... <laughs> I know what he's going through and there's just a helplessness, the weight of that wheel and the you know the sinking feeling that it's all going wrong at the same time and you're trying to power through and all you're begging for is a caution. I've driven a car one time without power steering and it wouldn't even be as hard as these next gen cars you know, in terms of where it failed. Right now, cars are designed without power steering all the time. Those are different. But when it, you have a power steering car that fails, yeah. it is just one of the most excruciating experiences you'll go through because you saw him he went from driving the car normally slightly to eventually towards the end he's literally putting his hand over the wheel and just tugging on it (laughs) using his weight just trying because his shoulders are destroyed his muscles are destroyed and I don't disagree with him that guy is in incredible shape he's one of the very few that could do that I think there's many drivers myself included I have to look in the mirror real deeply and be like could I do that I don't even know so that is heroic effort just to Get that thing around there because you also have all the load through the banking of the Roval, which makes it incredibly hard. The slow speed corners, it's just that that is such a hard thing to do. You know, more power to him on finishing it, but in terms of the playoff scenario, devastating. Trackhouse has been awesome to watch and see them go this far. Uh, and obviously, they still have one going for it, but that is uh, that has got to be heartbreaking because they basically did everything in their control right, right? And just right. one thing goes wrong, and I'm sure they'll dissect it and hopefully not let it happen again, but we've seen that this year, right? There's just been stuff like that that everyone's had and it's just trying not to have it the uh, the wrong time
2: yeah and Suarez said he, he made the reference to the crappy parts that <laughs> Kevin Harvick and Martin Trish Jr. who both talked about I don't think that NASCAR took the 99 after the Roval uh, which was good <laughs> but he was somewhat making light of the fact that they were gonna have to go back to the shop and diagnose was this another one of the part failures that the mm. next gen unfortunately has experienced and there were a lot of concerns going in the Roval because this was where the steering issues first cropped up a year ago at the test oh. and and Suarez ultimately was the only one who's affected, but there were several at Bristol. That was like maybe the first time that the cars got really exposed. What do you think NASCAR needs to do to look at this for 2023? Do the quality control issues just get, kind of get sorted out on their own? Or are there things that they need to do with the supplier, the, the vendor in this case, you know, who can bulk these things up?
0: I think it should be a constant evolution. I think I think this process, you know, this it's just we're at too high a level to have failures of parts if it is the part failing right or if it's if it's user error that's different right Mm -hmm. but it it just seems like we you know this is the second biggest auto racing form of auto racing in the world why are we dealing parts that maybe aren't up to snuff right like that should be a quick evolution work through system process evaluate see more than one instance of it okay quick resolution. Financially, there should just be a slush fund at this point. I don't know how you do that. I'm not going to get into the <laughs> deal of that, but I'm sorry. This is the top level of American Auto Racing. Yeah. Find the money to fix it. It's ridiculous when I hear about money and I'm just like, this is why. Just make the cars work. That should not be an issue. <laughs> yeah, I think that should just be a constant evolution process because the car is something that the teams can't touch themselves. So... Then it has to be up to the sanction body to who you know deems this, this the race car. You have to race to find a process to make that happen with those suppliers in real time. And if a supplier can't create a part that's good enough, then you have to go find another one or figure it out because it's just I just think it is too much at stake. You have too much, too many people who rely on the you know the actions on a Sunday their livelihoods, their you know their careers, their futures for it to come down to parts that maybe aren't up to snuff.
2: Right, because uh, you just said it really well. I think a slush fund makes a lot of sense in, in an industry that literally has hundreds of millions of dollars flowing through it annually. Yeah. If there are problems at Bristol, then maybe the next step should be, hey, emergency test at Charlotte Motor Speedway two days from now where we make sure this doesn't happen again yes. at the Roval. Right?
0: And whoever, you know, working the suppliers. And I know there's constraints to making things happen. And I know that's what we've gone through here with the right. safety situation with the rear of the car. And it's, you know, it's gone as quick as it possibly can. But to me, that's where there's an issue, you know, where where there's a will, there's a way. And I just, I think in the modern day, knowing what, you know, these amazing in the private sector in terms of, you know, companies creating, going into issues and being able to fix them in fast, rapid fashion or designing new fashions. Like, this should be no different. It should be, it should almost be looked at as, like, an opportunity for NASCAR, for motor racing to once again show its relevance. Okay, how quickly can you design a rear clip, get it tested, and put it on a race on cars and design and manufacture it and all that stuff? Could it be done faster than we've ever done it before, right? Yeah. And could it be done right? Like, that's the thing. Like, can you make a whole new steering system in the fastest fashion possible? I know I'm not an engineer. There's a ton of engineers out there who'll be like, oh, this is ridiculous. But I watched Elon Musk land a rocket from the sky literally multiple times. Without any sort of help, it's landing on the ground. I think we can figure out how to make a better stream box.
2: And if NASCAR can fix its steering issues in like two days or whatever, you know, yep. maybe there are spin offs or that kind of moonshot. You know, resources and energy and work that went into that, maybe it does go to an OEM and like, hey, there's processes here we can use in a street car.
0: So, I, I don't know. It's just, yeah. I just can't. I don't. I don't like. I don't like hearing like that's just, that's just all it can be done or whatever. And I'm just like that. To me, that yeah. then we would all be you know if that was the case we'd all be winding around in horse carriages still. That's
2: not how we beat the Russians to the moon. Damn, Man, there right. you go, there, yeah, yeah. I like that. Okay, let's we'll move on to the positive side of the roval. Chase Briscoe goes from essentially being out after getting spun on the second to last restart, gets fresh tires, and then on the final restart makes this incredible charge back into the playoffs. Makes this bonsai move into the chicane on the backstretch on the final lap. Your tweet, I thought, explained it really well, that he was braking later and was also carrying way more speed into the chicane than he had at any point, I think, during the previous 111 laps. Explain how difficult that is, because I know he was on fresh tires. I'm sure that had something to do with it, but explain how difficult that is for a driver.
0: Yeah, so what he did, and it was aided by Johnny Klausmeier, you know, pumping the tires up to qualifying pressures, which essentially creates a ton more grip under braking and a ton more grip through the corners. And we've seen this throughout the season where, you know, you can't really change much on these race cars, but when we go from practice to qualifying, they bolt these tires on, but they pump up the air pressures and suddenly they go way faster. Yeah. Because you can't put tape on them or anything anymore, right? So it's it's pretty interesting how much grip that creates with this race car. And so when Chase was on that final lap, you know, he gets ahead of the 43, he's trailing the three, and it, I watched this all on the data and in you know watched the video as well. And what he does is the second, the three is sort of about to start breaking. He pulls left and waits a second. And now a second doesn't sound like a lot, but at 160 miles per hour. <laughs> I haven't done the math, and so the engineers listening out there that are really frustrated with the last bit of this conversation, do the math for me. Tell me how far he went. I don't know. But it was roughly a second further at 160 miles an hour. He then nails the brake uh, about 100 pounds more than he had Prior on his And I'm comparing this To his fastest lap In the race Yeah He then carried 5 miles per hour more To the center of the corner Now From the point That he hits the brake And all the people Were like Oh my gosh You only looked that way Because the 41 Were slowing up the 3 car Yes at the end Of the braking zone But what you didn't realize Is that Chase broke Vastly later Than Austin Dillon and was carrying probably way more speed by the point, even if the 41 wasn't there, those two would have met most likely in the middle. And the way I look at it, I think the 14 would have been almost a nose ahead of the three by the time they get to the right-hander of the chicane. So to me, it was like a moot point that the 41 was doing what he was doing, other than he got around the 41, which he probably would have anyway, because the 41, who knows what was going on. But, But my point being... So there was a lot of fans, you know, armchair experts that were like, no, oh, it's just because of the 41. He didn't break that late, and I went and found the data and initially saw that. And what he, that's a tough thing to do because he had to just basically bonsai it off that corner and guess, right? Like, you've been running to this brake marker into that <laughs> corner all day for hours, and now final lap, cars around you, writing for your, you know, championship hopes. You have to just go on the gas and think, and I'm going to break now. <laughs> like, all right, let's see if this works, right? And you get all the way down, and it's like, oh no, 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 and then carry, then get out of the brake at the same point. So you're carrying five miles per hour more just to guarantee that you get through the corner ahead of the people beside you. I thought that was a really impressive thing, and you even see him lock up a little bit just at the the last bit of the the entry because he just was totally had sent it in there, and with hope that it stuck, and it stuck. So yeah. I thought it was a really impressive move. It was cool. It was visible, and it just goes to show that. The 14 can't be stopped. Like, they are the team that can. And I don't know if he goes all the way to the championship four, it's one of the most unbelievable stories considering he entered the playoffs, I think, with like out of top 10 in 21 weeks or something. I think he only has like six top 10s this season <laughs> or something. But he's actually been,
2: he was my dark horse pick. I sat there, really? I was looking this up today. NASCAR American Motor Mouse on the Wednesday before Darlington. It was myself, Kyle Petty, Marty Snyder sitting here. We had to give our championship four first four out. And who's your dark horse surprise pick? And mine was pretty. Briscoe, because yes, the results weren't showing it, but even like, if you look at races like Watkins Glen, where when the, the, you know, the track shifted from wet to dry and he and Klossmeyer made that huge gamble to be the first out on slicks, to me, that was not by accident or coincidence that he was that fast and that that team sort of seized that moment. Like the results don't show it because Chase Briscoe does make mistakes on track and they have maybe made some questionable calls that have left him out, but... I don't think there's any question he's shown that he deserves to be in the playoffs, even if the results yep. haven't always been there. He's got the win at Phoenix. I mean
0: I think, yeah, by the just of system, he's in the playoffs, right? So he deserves to be there. But I, I I think it's just been surprising to see this team, you know, we always look for consistency. They just haven't shown that, right? Until he yeah. gets to the playoffs though, and then I think the impressive maybe more so than this race, the most impressive race I saw was Texas. They were legitimately not a top twenty five car beginning of that race and for a major portion of it they made huge changes the most changes I've seen done in a race in the next gen era and I said that on the broadcast I was like I have never I have not seen this yet this year they throw all these changes at it and he goes out there and finishes the top five through all the craziness at the end I was like wow That was impressive.
2: With all these other championship teams (laughs) battling with all these air pressure, I'm sure it was, like, tempting, like, how much do we push it? And they found a way through, like you said, to finish top five with a car that was barely in it the first half.
0: Barely in it. And so that was just really impressive. And I think he – I've spent a little time with Chase and Johnny Klossmeyer just hanging out with them, and they have a great rapport together. Chase is such a laid-back human being. I don't know if a lot of people know that, but the way he is on TV, that's pretty much him. Like, he's the most laid-back guy who then gets in the race car – And just finds a way. And I think he did that in the Xfinity series. We've seen him do that in trucks. He's just a very impressive race car driver that gets it done when it matters. And it doesn't really phase him. Like, I'm not surprised to see him excel in high pressure scenarios because he's just such a calm, relaxed person. I have trouble thinking about him bonsaiing it off into a corner like he did because I don't think of him thinking that way. Like, yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah. he's just so laid back. What do we care? Yeah. <laughs> but he does it, and he does it really well. It's impressive.
2: And it kind of dovetails with his backstory of, like, I'm just going to move to Charlotte and just sleep yeah. on couches until and you know sweep floors for people until I find a ride somehow with the ARCA team that got him to Stuart Haas Racing. And yep. I agree with you. He's got a very appealing personality and a great backstory, so it'll be interesting to see what he can do. You mentioned the 41, and I want to get your take on that. NASCAR said afterward they're going to investigate the data and the radio chatter between Stuart Haas Racing and Cole Custer, and see if anything fishy, suspicious was going on there in terms of Custer helping his teammate Chase Briscoe. You know, I don't know. I'm not a driver, of course, but this didn't really strike me as rising to this level of necessary manipulation. Like, to me, it doesn't enter into that category at all. Like, I wouldn't put this in the category of what we saw at Richmond in 2013, which, of course, is the specter that everybody's going to raise here. DJ's Mia Motor mouse was on our production call earlier today, and he said the same thing. Like, he doesn't understand how this would be different than super speedway racing on a restart, where... Two teammates on the front row. One slows up to let yep. the control car fall in ahead or whatever. Do you think there will be anything that comes out of this? A NASCAR investigating what Custer did? or
0: Everything I saw. First of all, they have, they'll have they always have plausible deniability with, you know, saying there's an issue. I yeah. had a vibration. And, and Custer had, did
2: say that. Custer said he thought he had a flat. Flat tire going yeah. down.
0: Whatever. Yeah, like, that's... <laughs> yeah. That's going to happen. And it was, wasn't like it made any difference anyway. Chase was going to be in anyway because he had the tiebreaker. So... It really did – I think the fans who blew this out of proportion was like he was blocking the three, you know, playing. And I'm like, all right, let's just play this last lap for you for a second where (laughs) in some point there, you're telling me that Cole Custer was told to block cars. (laughs) Like, have you driven a race car around the (laughs) road? Like how hard it is to be like navigating the road and then think I'm going to block these cars – that are coming, but I don't know where the 14 is because I haven't seen them the whole time, and I have no idea how, and I've got this headrest around me. Like, that's just the most ridiculous notion. He probably, if anything, thought if there was some way that that was, you know, instructed to maybe allow the 14 through, he just slowed up a little bit. Like...
2: Which is totally fair. Which is like, totally fair. We've seen teams say all the time, "Hey, uh, you know, before a restart, he's probably told Chase is like on the cut line or near it, and he's this." Just many don't race him so hard. You. Yeah.
0: Basically, like, just don't race him so hard. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, you got to my side, which he did. All right, go ahead. I'll, but you know, like, yeah. it's just teammates race each other like that all the time. So, you know, I don't want to put put it down because it didn't maybe matter, but I I think it's is only natural if you have teammates that there's going to be areas where teammates are asked not to race each other as hard. I think that's a very much different than what we saw in 2013 or what it was a 2013, 2012, 2013, 2013 at, Richmond. at yeah. Richmond where, you know, there was a concentrated effort yeah. and a plan. And you know what I mean? Like
2: like to me, what the difference there is that was manipulation. They brought yeah, out a yellow that affected everybody else's race. Yes. In this case. Okay. Yeah. Maybe you want to argue that Custer slowed up Dylan. But for the most part, it was just Custer and Briscoe were the only affected parties. And it's literally,
0: you could be put as simple as, just don't race your teammate that hard. Right. And that's what he did. Right. So I I see a non-issue. Nothing to come of it.
2: All right. Well, I don't want to do anything that detracts from Chase Briscoe's sublime performance, which you described as the ballet of driving a heavy stock car on a road course, which... That was very eloquent of you, Parker. And that brings me into my next conversation I wanted to have with you about the next gen on-road courses. Interesting conundrum here, because this was a stock car that was kind of built, as I understand it, and as NASCAR kind of framed it, as a stock car being built on a sports car platform. And sports cars, of course, are designed to race well on road courses. And it seems as if this car certainly drives well on road courses, but I think the question is, is it racing well enough? And are there things that NASCAR should do to make this car race better? Obviously, you have experience, a ton of experience on road courses. You've driven stock cars. You've driven sports cars. What do you make of the next gen on road courses in its first year this year? And, and does NASCAR need to do things to make them race better?
0: I think it's been disappointing. You know, and I'll be honest. I, I don't know why it's been fairly disappointing to watch go around a road course as much as, like, I was very excited for this car and potential on road courses knowing that it still kept some of the characteristics of a stock car it's really heavy you know it's 3,400 plus pounds 3,600 or so with the driver like this is a heavy race car you don't run into anywhere else right you know that is unique to NASCAR and NASCAR only it still has a lot of power and you know you got to put that through the rear wheels right so I'm thinking like as I look at this thing coming into this year I'm like okay this is It keeps all the same flair of a stock car, but maybe with some cool additions and sequential shifting, this could actually be really cool. And I think what is interesting is it's not easy to drive. You watched yesterday. they're, They're sawing at the wheel. They're doing things in there. It just seems like it has trouble creating a discrepancy in speed amongst cars around itself. And what I mean by that is like, if we look at the Xfinity car, which is essentially the old car, it's like a water buffalo in a china shop, as I used to describe it as. Like, they just are not designed to go around road courses. They don't do anything well. And in that, there's a lot of area for different cars and drivers to make speed in areas versus struggle in other areas, if that makes sense. And like there's, yeah. there can be big discrepancies about how you can put the power down, or how well it breaks, or how much speed you can roll through the center. It just seems like, one, you have the incredible talent level of the Cup Series, which is you know, the highest there is. That's amongst drivers and teams. So, you know, maybe they're set up really well. But it just seems like there is a, for every reason, there's a point where everyone's kind of running at a very similar speed. And I know Chase has kind of alluded to this. And I just think that is perplexing because, you know, I know the other car had a lot of differences from team to team. But it just seems like this is interesting compared to what we see in you know, with a car like this design in GT3 racing around the world, right, where they have ABS and traction control, so there should be very little differences. And they have BOP, and they can run super close together, you know, and make passes and have discrepancies in speed. You have the supercars in Australia, which is a pretty similar design to this car, especially their, their new one coming online. And they can run really close together and have a lot of discrepancies in speed. So I just, I I'm a little confused right now i'm trying to figure it out i'm talking to people trying to be like what do we think has to be done here right because it's still a nascar stock car it's still really heavy it seems really hard to drive why do we get to points where people are saying it's hard to pass right like on a road course and that's what i'm i'm struggling with and so i don't know if i really have an answer here i I think you know whatever the answer is i think could be a similar answer to the short tracks right I, i think the problem we're seeing racing product wise is consistent at the short tracks and the road courses and I think the issue has got to be similar because I see the same thing where it's just like a stagnation amongst the field amongst speed and that just is very confusing to me for all the reasons I listed that NASCAR stock cars are hard to drive because they're big and heavy and you know those sorts of things so you know, it is hard to drive. So I, I don't understand why we're all running the same speed. That yeah. Makes sense.
2: Yeah. No, it, it makes a ton of sense. And it seems like, as you said, like there should be more discrepancies in speed there that should allow for more comers and goers. Yeah. And that's the term. I mean, <laughs> and, and NASCAR obviously has battled this problem, unfortunately, a lot before. You know, mile and a half racing mm-hmm. for years, it was like everybody's stuck in the same spot. They spread out, they go single file, and then no one can gain position because everybody is running the same speed. And, and it seems as if what we hear. When that crops up in the past, is well, maybe if we can figure out how to get Goodyear to design tires that fall off more, that seems to work sometimes to solve those problems. Is that something that would be effective here? I mean, it, but it already seemed like, as we saw with Bell and Briscoe, that there is a big difference in tire wear, right? right in America,
0: and, yeah. and this weekend had a ton of tire wear. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was a ton of fall off. So I don't think that's the other thing. That's like, not it. There's a lot of fall off. <laughs> and you, you yeah. watch, you know, I, I, you watch those onboards. And coming off of turn four, and onto the turn eight, onto the banking. I mean, they're spinning the rear tires, and they're struggling to get the power right. down. That sort of thing. It's just like, okay, that should equal passing, right? Where one person's doing that better than the other person, but it doesn't. Yeah. And they they end up all running, and I'm just like, okay, what am I missing here? Like everything I know should be right here. It, it could be simply arrow. You know, it could be the underbody arrow is not working the way we hoped, or you know, something along those lines or, you know, there's a very popular consensus out there. It's like, just give it a thousand horsepower and it'll fix itself. Right. Like I know I say that facetiously sometimes, and I know fans, it's an easy, you know, you want a ton of engagement and likes on Twitter, just put a thousand horsepower (laughs) fixes everything. Um, and like, I've been guilty of that. And I do agree, like as a race car driver, just give me a thousand horsepower. I'll figure it out. Right. Like that's, that's gonna be awesome. Is that ultimate fix financially and all the things you know that go into that and with engines? And all, I don't know, probably yeah. not. But it's like I don't even know if that's the fix. Like if you just gave these things a thousand horsepower, does that just totally instantly create that wheel spin and issue? I, I don't, I don't know.
2: But just to correct some conventional wisdom that was out there, it's not because these cars drive too well or have too much grip. Which I think is that's like some just fans were saying. I, it's not that.
0: I don't. I just don't see that. Yeah. I don't see that. You know, I drove one. At Gateways, which involved hard braking to turn one, and I, I mean the braking could be some of it. That's, but it's like it's still a heavy car. Hard these are guys. long zones. <laughs> I mean that's yeah. one thing. You know, when I when this car came online this year, I think there was a lot of people that were like, "Oh, the braking zones would be way shorter." That sort of thing. They are some places. Some places, I'm like, these are exactly the same length, which is wild, right? But it's just because it's a big heavy car.
2: All right, I want to get to a round of eight preview. But before we go there, uh, obviously there was a lot of talk about NASCAR financials Mm, uh, in in the news this past week with some representatives of teams in the Race Team Alliance coming out and saying that they were pretty far apart with NASCAR in terms of their share of the pie with TV rights negotiations uh, set to begin and a new deal coming in 2025. So with that as the backdrop, Parker, uh, news today from Formula One. I'm just going to go to the story we have on NBCSports.com. Where Formula One team Red Bull, which won the championship last year, was ruled to have breached F1 budget regulations last season and was guilty of minor overspending according to the FIA, which of course is the sanctioning body for F1 and now we will see what the FIA does in terms of punishment for Red Bull. What do you make of all that? Because I think there's probably a lot of people in NASCAR who are curious uh, about how FIA, F1 will rule here, uh, involving their championship team going over the limit when they put all this effort into like, how do we keep our finances? How How do we get our arms around it and put budget caps in and everything like that? And Obviously, that's an ongoing discussion for NASCAR in the future
0: as well. Well, you hit the nail on the head. That a lot of people are watching this. I don't think it's just NASCAR. I don't think there's, I don't think there's a racing series in the world right now that isn't intensely watching this scenario and this situation because this has been discussed for years amongst all racing series. I believe you know NASCAR has possibly been the most vocal about trying to or institute some sort of budget. Cap or system You know Because of it being You know The the largeness, How large the budgets are But There's been a common consensus I think for years That No one's quite sure How to do that And the reason being Is that They view You know One race teams Can be funded In so many different facets And ways Right And with sponsorship And where that sponsor Comes from And if it's You know There's B2B deals And you have You know The OEM And how they fit into things And it's just very You know It's very murky And then you know, because of that, I think there's a consensus that the accountants and the lawyers would be making more money than we'd ever be able to save, right? Because you're just gonna pay these firms bajillions basically yeah. You think you spend
2: a lot of engines until you see billable hours. Exactly. In, to in figure out how others yeah. are
0: spending their money and it's like, Well, is this the <laughs> best way or should we just figure out a better system, right? So who knows? But the reason that's why it's so interesting what's happening with F1. They're innovators in this case. They were the first to go down this path. It seems like from the outside it has been slightly successful in creating more parity amongst the field, You know, at least closing the gap slightly. And, and from what we see in the media, team principals talking about the financial situation amongst F1 teams being better than it was a couple of years ago. Obviously, they've had a big rise in popularity, which has helped their sponsorship. So who knows what side is helping what. But what you alluded to, which is now that we know two teams went over, how does the FIA respond to this? What are the ramifications for going over? What do you deem to be, you know, a a large amount that going over? What do you deem to be minor? I know they say minor is within five percent. Yeah. But within that, you know, is one percent a penalty? Is two percent another penalty? Is three up to five percent being some sort of massive penalty? And so I just think everyone's watching this because. They're the first to do it, and how they sort through it is going to be really, really interesting to watch. And so I I did some things on social media about this uh, last week, and I had some fans be like, why should I care? (laughs) And I was like, well, let me tell you why I should care. Do you watch any other form of racing? Which I think you do because you follow me, which means I only talk about motorsports. I definitely don't talk about any other sports. So you like racing. You like motorsports. This is really key for all the motorsports to figure out how we're going to keep doing this thing of racing cars and making it financially viable without just, you know, running out of money eventually and not doing the same more.
2: I mean, F1 is the big dog. They are the number one racing series in the world, and I should yep. have said this at the outset just to give people some context. The budget cap last year was 145 million. So, and the reports were speculating that Red Bull was there was about 5% over, it. that would be around 7 million. Um mm-hmm. and this year the budget cap went
0: to 140 million. Next year it drops to 135 million. And to add on to that, Ferrari came out last week in some political posturing as the the rumors were persisting that you yeah. know there was two teams over and one was Red Bull they said that they believed you know that 5% could be worth a half a second per lap over a season that amount of spend
2: that's significant but
0: that's that's, significant. you never in formula yeah. 1 never quite trust what you read always think <laughs> it with a grain of salt yeah, who it's knows what throat, they were what they were trying to achieve played. with that
2: yep. and and i will just end by saying the FIA said in a statement that they are currently determining the appropriate course of action to be taken with respect to Aston Martin and Red Bull, the two teams that went over. But reporting in this AP story and other stories were that it's highly unlikely that Max Verstappen will lose his 2021 championship. What a story that would be. Uh, (laughs) Back to NASCAR. We'll wrap up by looking uh, round of eight. So we've got Las Vegas, Homestead, Martinsville. Denny Hamlin said all of these tracks are P1 for him. Uh, (laughs) I think DJ said earlier today, Dale Jarrett said, that uh, if they could have laid out a round of eight, and Denny Hamlin would have choice of tracks. These would probably be like three of the four tracks he would have taken. Uh, is he the favorite? Chase Elliott goes in with a big point lead. Does it look like those two guys, or and then who are the other two guys that might join them? How do you size up Round of Eight?
0: So I had uh, Denny and Chase in my championship four. As did I. And Blaney, in there. I did so not. Okay. I'm I'm pretty optimistic right now. Yeah. You're uh, good. The only four one that didn't. Uh, my fourth was Kevin Harvick. He uh, didn't make it here. Yeah, he I don't, don't know if yeah, yeah, he kind of missed out on that eliminated. one. <laughs> my out. four are
2: still alive, by the way, <laughs> just to toot my own horn here, because I caught a lot of grief for this. My four are Hamlin, Elliott, Logano, and William Byron, wow. which drew a lot of derision when I made that prediction right here on August 29th or whenever that was. Uh, I
0: also chose William Byron to win yesterday. And it oh, did you? Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. No. Yeah, no, didn't That's, do well. I still feel like he's going to win. Back to your initial point about Denny Hamlin, I, I do believe that, and I love to make the joke that it's Denny Hamlin's year until it isn't, right? <laughs> yeah, for so say that he's always the favorite. Same
2: for me. I'm always going to put in the championship four until he wins the championship because he's always his year. Yeah,
0: I know. I this, <laughs> the year he wins the championship, I know. You know, he said on the Dale Jr. Download that when he he would win his last race, I'm pretty worried if he wins the championship, we just say <laughs> goodbye because, like, I mean, how does he ever top that? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. But um, no, I'm just kidding. But the that team, Chris Gabehart to me is one of the most intelligent people in all of American motorsports. You know, every time I talk to that guy, I learn seven things plus three or four things I don't know how to comprehend at least without taking some time to go sit down quietly and think about them in the shape of the universe possibly. <laughs> but the that plus his, you know, work ethic and just ability to rise up in really high pressure packed moments. I just think that that, that 11 team is such a core unit that's just been so well oiled You know, if they, as long as something doesn't bite them in speeding penalties, they have to be a favorite. And you then look at the tracks, his history of those tracks, especially Martinsville. And I feel very confident in Dig Hammond being a part of the Championship Four. And if he does, I, without a doubt, would put him very high odds of becoming your champion.
2: I mean, Fourth straight year he'd be in the championship for if he makes it's it. At some point he's gonna win it. And like you said, if he makes it, I might have to come on just to do a special episode on Gabe Hard, who I think is like <laughs> the intellectual's racer. Like no I, one combines like cerebral with true like short track racer mentality more than that guy. He's the I, epitome of it. I was, other, I was
0: telling someone I was telling someone who's not in racing about him, and I said he's the type of guy that I wouldn't be surprised if he was the CFO of Apple one day. <laughs> yeah. Running a print team principal of a Formula One team or crew chief of a NASCAR. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like he's Just one of those high performance individuals that every time you speak to him, you're like, ah, this guy just knows way more than me. I get it. Yep.
2: Well said. You know way more than me about NASCAR, which is Uh why I always appreciate you coming on the podcast. Parker, thanks for being here.
0: Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. This has uh, been
2: fun. We appreciate Parker Kligerman for joining us on the NASCAR and NBC podcast. Thanks to producer Aaron Feldstein and motorsports manager Emily Convoy for coordinating Parker's appearance. The NASCAR Cup Series heads to Las Vegas Motor Speedway this weekend. Coverage gets started Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern on NBC. Check out NBCSports.com slash NASCAR for detailed schedules, start times, and coverage, as always. And every Thursday at 10 p.m. Eastern on USA Network, it's the new docu-series Race for the Championship. This is the inside look at the 2022 NASCAR Cup Series season. In the world of NASCAR, every driver has their story. The new docu series Race for the Championship will give you an all access pass behind the scenes like you've never seen before. Catch Race for the Championship Thursdays at 10 Eastern, 9 Central on USA Network. If you have any NASCAR and NBC podcast feedback, you can send it to me on Twitter. At Nate Ryan is my handle. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR and NBC podcast.